In his book on communion called uh, The Meal That Jesus Gave Us, this author named N.T. Wright, he says, imagine that an alien showed up at your door for a birthday party, right? And he starts off this book by saying that, so the kids in the room can help me out with this. Imagine an alien showed up at your door, knocked on the door, and it was the day that you're having a birthday party, has never seen that before. As this friendly alien came in, you'd imagine that he'd stay close to you and have lots of questions as the party went on. He'd ask you things like, why are all these people here? He'd ask you things like, why are they wearing those funny hats? What are those things bouncing in the air? What's with all the signs? Why do people keep giving you boxes? And you'd have to start explaining to them. You'd have to say, no, 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 these boxes are gifts. They're giving it to me. The balloons are decorations. The signs are there. The people are wearing the funny hats because they're celebrating my birthday. And then the alien might ask you, well, today's your birthday. That means you were born today. My goodness, you're a really big baby. And you say, no, 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 no. I wasn't born today. I was born 10 years ago. But we celebrate it every year. Every year we celebrate the day that I was born. And then he might ask you, well, why are all these people singing to you? And you'd have to scratch your head and go, well, that's what you do on a birthday. That's what you do. You, you sing to the person to make them feel special. And then they might say to you, well, isn't everybody special? Yes, everybody's special, but on your birthday, you're special, special. That's just the way that it is. And, and, and why is that lady putting that cake on fire? And you'd say, no, 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 it's not that. Those are candles. And why do they do that? And you'd, you'd finally just give them a piece of cake and say, just eat this. This is what we do. This is how we celebrate birthdays. It's just the way that it is. Wright goes on to say, there are thousands of things that we all do that to someone on the outside would seem totally foreign, totally alien, but for us, for some reason, they've been agreed upon in our culture, in our customs, in our way of life, and we know exactly what they mean. If I meet you for the first time and I reach out my hand, you know to shake it. You don't cup me by the face. You don't put your hands on my shoulder. You know you're supposed to take my hand and shake it. That's what we do. If, if I went like this, you would imagine that I am paying respect to someone in authority, that I'm part of the military. I wouldn't have to say a word. You would know exactly what was going on. If a young man was on one knee in front of a young woman... Without a word, you'd know exactly what he was doing. There are thousands of things like that that seem perfectly normal to us. They make perfect sense to us that would seem totally alien and completely foreign to those on the outside. So it is within Christianity as well. Because within Christianity, there are all kinds of things that make perfect sense. But I imagine if you're on the outside looking in, it could seem like an alien at a birthday party. For example, when someone becomes a Christian, we take that person over to a lake, or sometimes here to a horse trough, and we dunk that person all the way under the water and bring them back up. We call that baptism. We do that. Jesus told us to do that. Or what we're talking about this week, what Mark shows us in this chapter in Mark 14, is that every week at our church, just about every single Sunday we've ever gathered, We have a meal here. It's not a very big meal, so you may not even remember that you had one. But every Sunday we're here, we share a meal together. We eat and we drink together. And if you're not familiar with Jesus, and if you're not familiar with the church or with Christianity, I can just imagine how alien and foreign this whole thing can feel and sound. Because we Christians talk about eating Jesus' body. We talk about drinking Jesus' blood. 
That has to sound like you're from another planet listening in, going, what is that and why do they do that? And in fact, if that sounds odd to you, I want you to know you wouldn't be the first ones to think it. The earliest critics of Christianity used to call Christians cannibals. They called them cannibals because they overheard what they do when they gather together on their God's day. They eat his body and drink his blood. And so the common way of talking about Christians was to describe them as cannibals. Because what sense does any of that make? It's like being an alien at a birthday party. But I want you to hear, once you're on the inside looking out, I want you to know this makes as much sense as a handshake or a salute or getting down on one knee or a birthday party. And in fact, I'd even say, speaking of birthday parties, birthday parties have this incredible power in their simplicity to do three things at the same time. A birthday party will look to the past, celebrate the present, and await the future all at the same time. When you're at a birthday party, we're celebrating the fact we're so glad that you arrived into the planet 10 years ago. And so at a birthday party, mom and dad will sit and talk about, oh, I remember that morning. And I remember, oh, mom said it was time, and we ran to the hospital, and you'll recount all the details of what happened back then, and you'll celebrate the past. But at the same moment, you're having the party today. It's in the present. Today's when we're eating the cake and wearing the hats and putting up the balloons and singing happy birthday. We're celebrating the reality in the present. And yet at the same time, a birthday party looks to the future as well. On the other side of the ocean, when they say happy birthday, they'll often say many, many happy returns of the day. That phrase is to say, may this good day return many, many times. Let it recur many more times. On this side of the ocean, we'll sing happy birthday, and sometimes we'll say, and many more. Meaning we can't wait till we gather and do this again. We celebrate the past, and we, we remember the past, and celebrate the present, and anticipate the future. The meal Jesus gives us, the meal we'll share in this service today, as we've often done, does the same thing. It remembers the past, it celebrates the present, it awaits the future. In fact, sometimes the way we've said it together as a church is, your death, O Lord, we commemorate, and your resurrection and all its benefits we celebrate, and your second coming we await. This is what Mark has for us as well. First, then, the past. Look at Mark 14, we're in verses 12 to 21. That's a large section there, but I'm basically going to summarize for you that what Mark is telling us is he's setting the scene for this meal that we're going to see Jesus have in verse 22 and following. In verse 22 and following is the meal, but in the setup, Mark wants you to know, look, Jesus has made all the arrangements for this meal. In some ways, it almost sounds like when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem for the first time, he had sent two disciples, told them, when you go in, you'll find it like this and so and so, and they do. And the whole point is, again, to communicate, Jesus is in charge here. He's directing everything. He's not evading anything, escaping anything. He knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem, and yet he's leading the charge. So it is with this meal as well. And here... He gives direction for them to prepare the Passover meal. Let me read you the section we'll look at especially, 22 to 25 once more. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Mark sets up that they're about to have this meal, right? Jesus sends out the disciples so that they can have the meal. And Mark tells us in 12 to 21, this is no ordinary meal. This is the Passover. Okay, now if you said, what is that? What, what is the Passover? Well, imagine it's 100 B.C., and now you're the one from a different world and a different time, and you show up at a doorstep. Imagine you knock on a door of a Jewish home in 100 B.C., and you look inside. Now you'd be the one with all the questions. You'd ask, why are all these people here? And you'd ask, what are they celebrating? You'd say, wait, is this a birthday party? And someone in the home would say to you, no, 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 what this is, at least it's not the birthday of one person we're celebrating. We are actually celebrating the birth of our people, the birth of our whole nation. And they would tell you this meal is called the Pesachak. It's, it's passing over. It's the Passover. And, and what you'd do is you'd sit down at the table and you'd notice this great family of people there. And at one point in the night, you'd notice a mom sort of nudge the youngest kid in the house. Uh, sort of elbow him in the ribs, and, and that would be his cue, and he would say a line. You could tell it wasn't something that he had just thought up, something spontaneous. It was something that he had been scripted, told to say. And so the, the little boy in the house would say, why is this night different than all the other nights? That was his scripted question. And then the, the head of the house, the dad, He would sit at the head of the table, and he would respond. He'd have a smile on his face, and you could tell by the way he answered that he wasn't making up lines either. This was scripted. This was was said the same way every time. And he would say, because on this night, our God saved us from the Egyptians. And the dad would go on through that night to tell you this unbelievable story. He'd tell you about how our people were slaves in Egypt, how they were under the Pharaoh in his bondage. They, for four centuries, were languishing. And then God came, and he'd tell you the story of Moses, the prophet that God sent, and plagues that fell on Egypt, and, and of the Red Sea, and the whole story that we now call the Exodus. And throughout the night, you'd be eating different things. And as you ate things, there'd be more commentary that the head of the house would give. As you eat different things, he'd explain different parts of the meal. So, for example, at one point, someone would pass herbs to you. You'd take a bite of it. They would be so bitter, your eyes would water. You'd lean over to the person next to you and go, why do you guys eat this? And they would explain. These are bitter herbs. They remind us of how bitter our life was in Egypt. In fact, life and slavery in Egypt was so bitter, it would make your eyes water. This reminds us of that. At some point in the night, someone would pass over bread to you. And it wasn't really bread. It was, it was like a cracker. It was unleavened. It had no yeast. And, and then the dad would explain. He'd quote from Deuteronomy, and he'd hold up this bread, and he'd say, This is the bread of affliction. It was eaten in haste. And he'd tell the story of how when we were getting rescued, nobody was going to wait around in Egypt for the bread to rise. No one was going to wait to bake bread. We were eating fast food. Because as soon as God was ready to let us out, we were going to go. No one was going to wait for yeast and the bread to rise. So unleavened bread reminds us of the haste in which we got out of our affliction. And so on the night would go. And then would come the main course. And the main course was always lamb. You couldn't change that. You couldn't say, let's have steak this year or try try salmon, it's healthier. No, you had lamb. And you had lamb because the head of the household would explain. 
and would say, the night before God rescued us, God was going to come down and he was going to bring judgment and justice on the land. And the truth is, we, Israel, knew if God was coming down to judge sin, we were as every bit guilty as the Egyptians were. And the only thing that separated us from them was that God provided a sacrifice. He gave us a provision. He made a way out. He told us that if we took a lamb and killed it and applied its blood on the doorposts of our house, then when God came in judgment and justice, he would pass over the homes that were covered in the blood of the lamb. And so that's what we did. We sacrificed these innocent lambs. Another died in our place for our sins. And we were rescued not because we were better than those who were not at this table. But we were invited to this table solely by the grace of God. He provided the sacrifice. Another died in our place and for our sins. And we were spared from judgment. It passed over us because it fell on the Lamb. And fell on the enemies of God. And we were rescued because we hid under the blood of the Lamb. And not only did we observe all that, we took it in. We, we received that Lamb. We, we ate its flesh. And we hid under its blood. Listen, by the end of the night, your stomach and your heart would have been so full. As you drank in and ate in all these rich meanings that came with God's Passover. You would have thought to yourself, all these realities, all these meanings swirling about in your brain, you would have thought to yourself, isn't it something? God was about to accomplish salvation tomorrow, and he instituted a meal the night before. You would have thought that. And then you would have thought to yourself, every time we eat this meal, we're reminded that we were saved because another died in our place. We live because another gave its life. Every time you ate this meal, you would remember we were every bit as guilty as the Egyptians. We were spared only because God had made a way and offered a sacrifice for us. And the judgment of God passed over us because it fell on the lamb and we were covered by its blood. You have all those rich themes swirling about in the air. And Mark says... With all of that floating in the air, Jesus and his disciples to sit down to have that meal. Mark 14, he assembles them together and says it's time for us to have the Passover meal. And Jesus, in this text, assumes the role of the dad. Meaning, he's going to be the one speaking the lines. The lines that everybody knew. And and listen, you can imagine that if you were sitting in that meal, you could have gone through that meal blindfolded. You didn't need a cue card. You had had this meal since you were a kid. You knew the lines. You knew what the responses were. You knew everything Jesus was supposed to say. You knew the questions you were supposed to ask. Everything was perfectly scripted. And so when Jesus takes the bread, you can cue up Deuteronomy because Jesus should say, this is the bread of affliction. And we left Egypt in haste. Except he doesn't. He says something else. He goes off script. He takes the bread, verse 22, as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body, 
Now, if you were sitting at that meal, you would be thinking to yourself, what is Jesus doing? What is he saying? And before you could get an answer for that, he does the same thing with the cup. He takes the cup, and verse 23, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Listen, Seven Mile Road. On that night, Jesus was changing the Passover. He was taking this meal that God's people had celebrated a certain way for thousands of years, and he was changing it. It's as if this, this Passover meal was a giant arrow pointing in one direction. And God, Jesus, was taking that arrow and turning it that night towards him. He was making this whole meal about him. He was saying of the bread, this is not just bread, this is my body. It's as if he was saying, the bread of affliction, it's my body. My body will be the one that is afflicted, that will be broken to accomplish the great exodus. It's as if he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood because I am establishing a new covenant and my blood will be the one that's poured out and sprinkled for the many. In this meal, Jesus is saying, listen, all of that stuff you read before was just getting you ready because I am the true Moses who's come to deliver God's people I am the true lamb that will be sacrificed for your sins in your place. I am leading then the true exodus. I am the one who's going to deliver you from your true enemy, and it's not Pharaoh. I am the one on whom judgment will fall so that it might pass over you. The wrath of God will pass over you because on the cross it will fall on me. I am all that this meal was getting you ready for. This meal that Jesus has instituted has often been called the Last Supper. And it's right. It will be the last meal that Jesus has with his disciples before he dies. God would accomplish salvation tomorrow, and so he institutes a meal the night before. It is the Last Supper. But many have pointed out in some ways at the same time, it's also the First Supper. The first, because at this meal, Jesus was inaugurating something new. He was essentially saying to God's people, this is your meal now. You catch this? This is your meal now. So do this in remembrance of me. From now on, from here on out, this is the meal you'll have. And you'll do it in remembrance of me. And when he's doing this, listen, he's not so much abolishing Passover as fulfilling it. He's not getting rid of it and discarding it like it was nothing. He's fulfilling why it was there. When a woman replaces her engagement ring with a wedding ring, it's not because she's abolishing her engagement. She's fulfilling it. That's the point, right? An engagement ring on her finger, all the while that it was there, was always waiting for a better ring. Now, the engagement ring is a good ring. Being a fiancé is good. Being a wife is better. Because to be engaged is to be in this process of always waiting for a better thing, a, a fulfillment of what you're longing for. It's good, but it's incomplete. The Passover was good, 
Jesus' meal is better. The Passover was good, but it was incomplete because it was always waiting for when it would be replaced by a better meal with, with a better Moses, when it would be replaced by better bread and better cup and a better main course. And Jesus had come in Mark 14 to say, it's here. Here is your meal now. When we come to Jesus' table, we look back. We look back just like Israel did when they came to the Passover, only what they saw in shadow we see in full. All the realities of what Jesus did for us is at this table. He is the Lamb who bore God's wrath and took on judgment, whose blood was spilled and you are covered in it and you are no No better than the people in our city who are not at this meal today. The only thing that separates you from them is that God has offered you a sacrifice and you by faith are receiving it. And so all the realities that were announced then, you remember. We remember your death, O Lord, we commemorate when we come to this table. But let's move from the past to the present. Because let's ask for ourselves for a quick moment, what does this meal mean now? What happens? What does it mean that you're taking it today? That you're eating this bread and drinking this cup today? We're not only commemorating the Lord's death, we're celebrating all the benefits and all the realities that that death accomplished then, which we enjoy now. Listen, let me say this to you. This meal has been called by Christians as many things. It's been called the Eucharist, which just means to give thanks. That's a good name for it. It's been called the Lord's Supper because it is. It's been called communion or holy communion. That's a great name for it because that's exactly what this meal shouts. It shouts to us that when you come to this table, you are having communion with Jesus. Jesus is present here. In fact, I want you to know He's not a spectator. He's not an observer. He's not a guest at this meal. He's the host of it. He's the one serving you. On that night, he wrapped a towel around his waist, got on his knees as if he was a waiter at this meal. He is serving you. You're the guest invited to his supper to feast on him. He's present. And when you take this meal, you have communion with Jesus Christ, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, I want you to know you receive a fresh and a new Christ and all the benefits that have come from his death and resurrection for you. When you come to this meal, you're not a spectator. You're not an observer. It wasn't enough on Passover for the lamb to die. That wasn't enough. No, you had to, you had to take it in. Receive it. In fact, you, you had to Eat the lamb that died for you. All the way in. In this meal, Jesus did not even just say, this is my bread or my body. And this cup is my blood. That's not where the instructions in these verses end. What does he say? Take and eat. Take and drink. That you're not spectators but participants. You must take him in. You must receive him. You're not just observing something that was done. You're taking it in. 
You're saying, as my body would shrivel up and die without taking in food, so my soul would shrivel up and die without his body and his blood broken and shed for me. I'm taking it in. I'm taking him in. I'm receiving him by faith. I'm communing with the Lord Jesus when I'm at this meal. And when I take those realities in, all the realities that came with his death, the forgiveness of my sins, the redemption of my past and who I am, the reconciliation that I have with God, the adoption into his family. You take any one of the benefits and you meditate on that and you receive it afresh and anew when you come to communion. And you take it in. You can know, look, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, restoration, adoption, those are invisible words, invisible realities. But at this meal, as solid as the bread is in my hand, so solid is my forgiveness. And as real as the cup is in my mouth, so real is my cleansing, my adoption. These tangible things are given to you to say they're solid and real. But it's called communion not just because at this meal we vertically meet with God. It's communion because we have this meal together. We commune with each other at this meal. This meal shouts, you are not only reconciled with God, you're reconciled with each other. You're adopted not only to become his child, but to be one another's brothers and sisters. And so, at this meal, we eat together. Listen, you didn't celebrate the Passover by yourself. You didn't grab a leg of lamb and go off to the corner and have a quiet time. You, you shared this meal as a feast with the family. So likewise, communion is not a private devotional time between you and the Lord. I want you to hear that. You're not having a snack by yourself with the Lord. You're having a meal with the family. This is like a big Olive Garden commercial, right? This is, this is family here, and we're having a big family meal. I want you to hear that. I want you to say, when, when you're having communion, it would be entirely appropriate for you to look around. I know everyone will think that you're not paying attention, but the reality is that's exactly what you're doing. You're paying attention. You're paying attention to the fact that surrounding you are a bunch of people that, if it were not for Jesus, wouldn't be together in this room. There'd be no reason for this assembly of people with our backgrounds and our differences to be together if it were not for Jesus. Listen, in Mark 14, do you notice what he does? Passover was a meal that you had with your family. That's how you did it. Every year you celebrated Passover with your family. Jesus told his disciples, who didn't share flesh and blood, to arrange the Passover. And he acted like the head of what? A new family. That were going to be united now by his flesh and blood. And they were going to be one new family in him. He was going to be the head of that family. That's what we celebrate in communion. We don't, share, we don't share ethnicity. We don't share race. We don't share background. We don't share culture. We don't share political understandings or leanings. We don't share jobs. We don't share common education. We don't share common socioeconomic status. We don't share income. There's a thousand things we don't share. One author said, what Christianity is, Jesus loved bringing together a natural band of enemies. That's what this room would be. 
you and I would walk right past each other down the street. But this meal shouts, family here, with a new head of a new family. This is what Jesus has done. And you think of, listen, you think of the family Jesus assembled that day. You think of the original members of the Lord's Supper, those 12 disciples. Jesus has said in 15 to 21 that one of the 12 would betray him. In the next scene itself, you'll see that another one will deny him, literally swear to God that he doesn't know who Jesus is. And the other 10 will all abandon him. In fact, if you read literally the next verse after the section we're looking at, Jesus says, you will all fall away. So the members of the first ever Lord's Supper are 12 people who all fell away. What does that mean? That means this table is for spiritual failures. This table is for spiritual failures. This is not a table of merit. You don't come to this table with your resume. You come to this table with your need. You don't come to this table with your assets. You come to this table with your debt. This is not a table of merit. This is a table of sheer grace. It's sheer grace. It's for spiritual failures. That's what communion is. That's what we celebrate in the present. And listen, this communion we have with Jesus and with one another is so serious that when other Bible writers, the Apostle Paul, will talk about it, he'll write to a young church plant that was making a mess out of communion. And he'll write to a church plant in Corinth. And he'll tell them, listen, think about this. And one of the things he says is, when you come to this table, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Now, when you hear that, there's two sort of opposite errors we can fall to when we come to communion. Two errors. One is to be so flippant, so careless, so casual, that you have no thought about your relationship with God, no thought about your commitment in a local body of the church. You have no thought about any of those things. This is just a religious thing to do. So you play church. I grew up in a very religious church, and I remember it was almost like it was like a rabbit's foot for Christians, like a four-leaf clover for Christians. It was just a good religious thing that you had to do to make sure that God was okay with you and you didn't get on his bad side. Flippant and careless and casual. That's one extreme. The other would be to hear, examine yourself, and then to take this thing and make it stuffy and rigid And this morbid introspection, because I've been there too, that says, okay, now let me look at my resume from this last week. And if I was good, I could come to the table. And you know, what kind of good? Like Jesus kind of good. And if I wasn't Jesus kind of good, then I couldn't come to this table. And yet the irony is, it's confessing that you are disqualified that qualifies you for the table. It's a table of grace, not of merit. It's not flippancy about sin, God forbid. But it's also not this morbid introspection. I don't come to the table because I'm righteous. I come because I'm repentant. And I trust that Jesus is righteous. And his righteousness has been given to me. That's why we come. And so it would be right for us in the present to examine yourself before you come to the Lord's table. This would mean questions. Questions like, start with simple ones. Am I a Christian? Do I love Jesus? 
Do I love Jesus? Am, am, am I a receiving him by faith? Questions then like, have I been baptized? It's a good question to ask. Remember we said the dunking thing is the first thing he gave you. It's sort of like the front door into the Christian faith. And then this meal is a meal that you have once you're in the house. Right? So the baptism thing he gave you was how you enter into the Christian faith. This is a meal that you renew your Christian faith. And so you don't eat outside. Come in the door through baptism and then eat the meal regularly. So that'd be a question to ask yourself. A question to ask yourself would be, am am I repentant? That's a different question than am I perfect? Am I repentant? Or am I living in conscious sin, unrepentant sin? Am I tolerating sin, managing sin, coddling sin, excusing sin, naming sin something other than sin so I can keep it in my life? Or am I repenting of my sin? Other questions would be to ask, not only my communion with God, but my communion with each other. So I'd ask, look, am I right in my relationships with each other? And if not, what needs to be straightened out here before I come to the Lord's table? And so examine yourself. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to hear this. This church is so glad that you're here. In fact, I want to say just about everything we do, I could say this with a straight face, has you in mind, even if you haven't trusted in Jesus. Just about everything we do, we think through, how does this sound to someone who doesn't know Jesus, or this is new to them? Can they understand this? Does this make sense to them? You are invited to just about everything in this church. You're welcome to gather with us. You're invited to attend with us, sit and worship with us, be in community groups with us, and share fellowship with us, and serve with us, and go to the ends of the earth with us. You're not invited to the table with us. Now, at first, that can sound harsh, but I want you to hear, it makes perfect sense. If I dropped my wedding ring on the floor, couldn't find it, and a single man, a guy who's single, took it and put it on his finger, not only would that be odd and weird, you'd go, that's inappropriate. That, that wouldn't make any sense, because why? Because that symbol... He, he, he's telling a lie with that symbol. He, he's not married for one, and he's certainly not married to the woman that Ajay is married to, and all the realities don't match the symbol. He's pretending to be something he's not. He's pretending to be something he's not. And so communion would shout to you, don't pretend to be something you're not. God warns to trample on this symbol without the realities matching the symbol would be judgment rather than blessing. It's a table of grace open if you trust Christ and have communion with him and with one another. Let me end by saying this. It not only commemorates the past and celebrates the present, it looks forward to the future. Listen to how Jesus finishes this meal, 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What that means is that this meal shouts, your death, O Lord, we commemorate. Your resurrection and all its benefits we celebrate, and your second coming that we await. This meal means we are not just remembering the past or celebrating the present, we are tasting the future. Remember all the stuff we said in Mark 13? The Son of Man will come, and when he comes, everything will be right. The world will be right, and we'll be right. All will be right. It's coming. And when it comes, we will eat and drink with him. And this meal points us 
to that. It's almost as if there's a world coming that's so good you could almost taste it. And that's what communion is. It's a foretaste of a world that's so good you could almost taste it on this Sunday. Let me end by saying this. I read of a church that had adopted a Jewish practice. There were Jewish people who would celebrate the Passover. They're scattered all throughout the world. Jewish people in, in America and Russia and everywhere. And their longing was to be in their land. And so they'd finish the Passover meal, and the custom of many Jewish families was to raise their hearts together and finish the meal by saying, next time in Jerusalem. And the hope was, by the time we do this next year, may it be that God brings us to our own land with our own promises and all the things that he promised. Well, the church took that and adopted that, and they would finish their communion service every time by saying, next time with Christ. That's right. The thought would be, we eat this meal today with all its benefits and blessings. And our hearts shout, Lord, let it be that we don't make it back here next Sunday. Because let next time we eat this meal, let it be in the kingdom that is to come. Let it be with Christ. And if we show up here Sunday, then we'll say it again. Next time with Christ. So, this is the meal. Your death, O oh Lord, we commemorate your resurrection, and all its benefits we celebrate, and your second coming we await. Let's pray together.